It's three things guaranteed in life, death, taxes, and Ian crying when he gives a talk. So... Listen, you've covered my whole trip. I won 100 quid there, just... Uh... Anyway, I better go because it's gone to 19 already. Okay, so let me let you into a little secret. Um, I'm here talking about the church and class, and I'm not even working class. Uh, when I was a lad, working class is what I aspired to be. I wanted to be a miner, or I wanted to work in one of the big mill factories in uh, uh, the northern town where I, I largely grew up. I wanted to be like the men around me that I saw going out to work every day. But unfortunately, the 80s got there before me. And uh, by the time I grew up, jobs were scarce, and the working men were either down the pub, uh, in the buckies, or scratching around for any menial job to try and put bread on the table. And this is a conference about class and the church. And the only thing I know for sure about class is that I haven't got much of it. Although, I live in a nice house, my own house. And that's unbelievable to a lad like me. I've got a nice car on HP, obviously. Uh, don't want to overdo it. Uh, <laughs> my girls, my two girls, they like Downtown Abbey and correcting my grammar. My wife, and I always say Downtown Abbey because it annoys people who come up to me and go, you know it's Downton, don't you? Yeah. <laughs> I do. Uh, my wife screws her face up in disgust when I say bog instead of bathroom. I'm having me tea while me girls are eating their dinner. So who knows what class is anymore? I don't. I mean, I could give you a good sociological lecture about its roots in society, but you know what? I don't care, and neither do most of you, right? Let's be clear about that. Um... But we all want to put a label on people and things, and I think we want to do that because we want to have some sort of meaning or find or discover or know our place in society, which I think is behind a lot of these things. You know, in our, our communities, council estates and housing schemes, um, the old working class, are, 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 they're dying out. You know, the miners, the old miners, the old factory workers, the like, that generation is going. And there's what I call the new working class uh, arising up in their place, the zero contract guys, the immigrants, the cleaners, the shop assistants. You know, those used to taking orders and living with the fact that there's no promotion incentives where they work unless you want to arise to be the shop manager and get an extra 50 pence an hour. And then you've got the middle class in all their variants, um, businessmen, doctors, administrators, those used to giving orders, uh, those who cherish dreams of upward mobility and bettering themselves and their lives. And you've got the upper class, um, usually all Anglicans. <laughs> and uh, that wasn't in my notes, and I, that's why I stick to my notes. Um, <laughs> who don't necessarily have more money than us. You realise that class is not about money, right? Most of my guys run around the scheme with more pocket change than you guys earn a month, all right, in their pocket. It's not about money, it's about power. And there's a privileged class that's running this country. Left-wing, right-wing, middle-of-the-road liberals. And, um, and then we're, we've got what I call class chameleons, People who are quite happy flitting about 
between one and the other, somewhere usually between sort of old working and, uh, and middle class. And uh, uh, we all know that the upper class is closed except to a chosen few. And then right there at the bottom of the pile, uh, as a result of 50 years of the social state, you've got my people. The Neds, that's non-educated delinquents, the Chavs, the underclass, the benefit street dwellers, the cannon fodder for Jeremy Kyle, the lazy, the sponges, the undeserving poor, although things are looking up for us now because apparently some of us have been categorized as deserving, so that's something to aspire to. Uh, I'm, on a, I'm on a stage in a, in, a, in, a, in a packed out hall. Some of you are wondering, what is he going to say that's going to be absolutely controversial? And you th you're waiting for it because you're... You're excited to tweet about it. Half of you are hoping that I say something stupid and make a sort of monumental balls up so it can be spread across the blogosphere to, uh, tomorrow by people who are very offended by my tone and critique. I've got people too hard. If I'm too hard here today, they'll pounce. If I'm too soft, my own people will go after me. If I'm too right-wing, we'll be on it. If I'm too Marxist, if I'm too intersectional, identity politic. Yes, I do know what all those words mean. Here's my point. I want to thank uh, you all for coming today. I want to thank Acts 29, particularly Steve Timmis, who's been a, a champion for us over many years for putting it on. Thanks to John Stevens for having the courage to turn up. And, um, and for the FIC, who have actually been very helpful to us in the last few years and who are co-sponsoring some of our um, roadshows. But I want to thank most of all the Lord Jesus Christ, without whom... I would be dead in my sins. My children would not have been born. I wouldn't be here dead, most likely, like most of my friends. My friends that I grew up with, there's two of us left alive. I'd be probably sitting under a bridge down the road, full of chemicals, and wondering where my life went so wrong. 24 years ago, I was shivering in the cold outside Victoria Station, just seven miles from this church. It's where I slept at night. I was high. I was hungry. I was scared. I was angry at the world. I was so full of rage, yet I had no clue who I was mad at. Just this vague thing called society. I was paranoid, trying to bat off the sexual advances of uh, male predators who wanted to uh, have sex with me. Within weeks, I'd be doing 15 months in a category prison where I got, I got angrier still, forced into terrible acts of violence, out of fear, and just trying to protect myself. I was always on edge. I was jittery. I was untrusting. I was gathered. I was paranoid. Instead of prison helping me, I just left it angrier than I'd entered it, angry at the world, angry at the system, whatever that was, angry at anybody who I thought had it better than me or easier than me. I'd been abandoned by my mother at two years old. I'd been discarded by my alcoholic, gambling-addicted father, tossed into a chaotic care system, forced from my home in Ireland into a children's home in England, passed from foster carer to foster carer, orphanage to orphanage, separated from my only sister, beaten, abused, ignored, and finally spat out by the system onto the streets, at 16 years old, violent, vengeful, and left to my own devices. And my social workers did me no favors either. I entered adulthood a complete mess. I was a victim. It wasn't my fault. It was my circumstances. It was the Conservative Party's fault. They stole our milk in the 70s and 80s. We never got over it. 
Imagine the man I could have been if I had only had milk as a kid. I'd definitely be a foot taller, right? I was angry, I was raging. They killed the miners, they killed the manufacturing industry, they wreaked havoc across the northern, uh, northern working class heartlands that I grew up in. Families devastated, crushed, men crushed in their prime, and I saw it all, and I was angry. The church, get a grip of yourself. Christianity, don't make me laugh. That wasn't for the likes of me. That wasn't even a consideration. Never entered my head. Homelessness soon followed, park benches, disused houses, friends, floors, wherever I could get my head down, all blotted out by more and more drugs, dealing, stealing, burglary, violence, whatever it took me to get what I wanted to get through the day, meaningless, monotonous jobs, putting lids on yogurt tops, making nails, making cardboard boxes, laboring, cleaning toilets, hating my life, hating my existence, making bad choice after bad choice. Again, none of it my fault. All of it, everybody else's. This is what society's made me. That's what I told myself. No one cares about me, so screw you, screw the world. And then the death of, uh, the death of my children sent me spiraling into a dark hole. One that I thought, I'll never get out of this. And all of this pressure all of this pain, feeding my anger, feeding my sense of victimhood. And then one day, I met with Christ in a very violent and uncompromising way. In fact, the book of Romans absolutely brutalized me. The God's word forced me to confront my cycle of sin. It forced me to confront my selfish choices, my self-righteousness, my self-absorbed, vicious cycle of sinful rebellion. I hated the book of Romans with all of my heart. If I would have met Paul, I'd have smashed him in the face with a bat. I wanted my social workers back. I wanted the kind old lady at the soup kitchen back who told me, you're not a bad person. Jesus loves you. And yet here was the Bible challenging everything I knew, every justification I'd ever had for every bad destructive choice over the years. And you know, it was a horrible, painful experience to be crushed by the weight of my own sin. But even though I hated it, I hated it because I knew it was true. When I was first told that Jesus loved me, I, couldn't, I didn't understand it. Not because I had daddy issues, you know what I mean? And all that stuff liberals say about us. I was thinking to myself, what sort of God is that? What sort of God that he just loves you as you are, Mez? Is that right? I didn't even love me as I was. But when I heard that God was angry with me, that he was angry at my sin, that was the most terrible thing I'd ever heard in my life and, and the most liberating thing. Yes, I was loved, but I was in deep trouble with a God of wrath. And as soon as I heard it, I knew it was true. Deep down, I knew it, but I hated it and I fought it. Who would it be without my excuses? Who would I be without my rage and my anger against the machine? What would I do when there's no one left to blame? but myself. And here I was, backed into a spiritual corner, no avenue of excuses left. And eventually, I threw myself on the mercy of Jesus. I confessed my sinful, proud rebellion against a just and holy God. I threw my weight behind the Lord Jesus to save me from myself, but more importantly, from my sin that had separated me from him and the rest of society. Against my wishes, I became a Christian. And overnight, 
I became a traitor to my people. I became a traitor to my family. I became a traitor to my beliefs, became a traitor to my anger, to my pain. I joined the other side. I was castigated for it. I'd committed the cardinal sin of trying to better myself, they said. Of thinking I was a cut above now, they said. Of trying to get out of the so-called life and culture that has been swallowing me up and killing me for years. How dare I leave the pond? How dare I even think of getting out of my chaotic, abusive, self-destructive life? How dare I do that and force my contemporaries to consider and look at the hard options of their lives? But I'd found Jesus, or at least Jesus had found me. And so I went to a church for the first time in my life. And you know what? I met people there who were kind to me, nice to me, fascinated by me as I by them. But it was very clear from the off we were different. They wore suits and hats and dresses. Not the men. men. The men wore the suits. Women wore the dresses. <laughs> Although we all know in Christian culture, it's the women who wear the suits and the men who wear the dresses. Let's just be clear about that. But anyway, that's not in my notes either. Um, they, they, they talked in Old English when they prayed. They taught the Bible like all of it was true. It was a weird thing. They shut my hand at the door. They showed me to my seat. One couple took me in. They let me live with them. I sat at a a table and had a meal at 23 years old. Imagine that. I've not done that since my days in care. They welcomed me into their home, but I would sit in my room alone. I wanted to like them. I wanted to love them. I wanted to be part of their family. I wanted to sit around the table and laugh about my day, but I just couldn't. I felt dirty. I felt unworthy. I felt fake. I just wanted to sit in my room alone, fearful, anxious, nurse my anger, scared that they'd find out what I was really like and then reject me as everybody had before. I wanted to be loved so much that I hated myself for being so weak. And so I rejected any form of affection. It's like if I denied it, then I couldn't be hurt if it all went wrong. And soon the pressure became so bad. The more I stayed, the more I liked it. The more I liked it, the more anxious I became. Then I realized one day, man, I am serious about Jesus. And I love being a part of a family that didn't stub cigarettes out on each other, that didn't smash me in the head with a pan because I didn't wash a fork properly, that didn't force me to eat my own feces as a bet to show off to drunken friends. I loved it so much. I needed to get away from it. I needed to run back to the streets, to the cold, to the vomit-strewn doorways to the fear that at least I understood and can control. And it's madness, I know. But thankfully, Jesus held me fast. A couple of good brothers held me fast. The love of Christian strangers won out over the madness of street culture, the devil, my own sinful desires. And I began to grow in Jesus. I began to get into the Bible. I began to devour the Bible. I began to understand the new surroundings, understand this weird culture that I was now in. And I began to question everything. And that is when my problems really started. You see, in the early days, I was a celebrity, at least in my little church. I was famous. Everybody knew who I was. I was a novelty item. I was a brand plucked from the fire, as somebody once said to me. I don't know what that that means. I was a trophy of grace, they called me. That was another one. Don't know what that means either. Soon, I became a man in demand. Everybody wanted to hear my story. 
Tell us how Jesus saved you, they said. But what they meant was, tell us all the gory, heart-rending details of your past. Recount your time in prison. Tell us your childhood abuse and your homelessness. About your homelessness. And yeah, throw Jesus in. And this lot, the, the church were an easy crowd to please. And I so wanted to please them. I so wanted to belong to them. I was a willing participant. It gave me meaning. It gave me a special kind of pride. It made me admired in a culture that despised my people at worst and feared them at best. And most important, it made the open doors to the wider church to accept me or so, I thought. I've been a Christian 24 years now, half my life. The boy I used to be feels so far away. I often wonder if it's somebody else I'm talking about. And of course, spiritually speaking, it is. I'm a new creation, a new man. I am God's man. I'm not the boy I used to be, but that boy's experiences overseen by the work of the Holy Spirit have certainly shaped the man I am today. Now, I don't, ex- I don't remember the exact day the celebrity shine started to wear off, for me at least, because there's always a line of Christians wanting to hear a juicy testimony. It didn't happen overnight. It was a gradual thing. First, I began to grow more in my knowledge of the Bible. Then I began to grow more in the knowledge of myself. I began to grow spiritually spiritually, instead of pride in my story, I began to feel shame. I wanted to run from it. I wanted to leave it behind. I didn't want to talk about it anymore. I felt like every testimony I gave kept me in bondage to the sin that I was trying so hard to leave behind. But everybody in the church wanted me to regurgitate it, to celebrate it. They celebrate my pain. Like it's, I don't know why Christians do this. And I began to feel perhaps I should, be, I should be doing more than just continually telling my horror, horror story for the entertainment of the middle classes. And as I began to try and say, no, I don't want to do that anymore. I just want to grow. I want to, I want to be a Christian. I want, to, I want to move away from that. As I began to move away from my story, the church began to move away from me. Not mean-spirited, you understand? Not overt, subtle. I didn't want to talk about prison and my dead children. I want to talk about the doctrines of grace. Have you heard about the doctrines of grace? They're absolutely chicken oriental. They are mental. And people will be saying, oh, you don't want to talk about that. Doctrine kills. You just stick to loving Jesus, son, and you'll be fine. And it wasn't long before I figured out these people weren't helping me. These people were stifling me. They were killing my growth. I'm sure they loved me, but they were wrong. And I'm down to 88 seconds. I'm never going to end, so that time I can do one. And, 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 and I began to feel like guys were deliberately keeping me down. That the unspoken assumption is guys like me don't become pastors. We don't need to know the Bible deeply. I told myself, you're just being paranoid. But everything I saw matched my thoughts. I never met a pastor from a council estate. I never he- heard a voice like mine except on a stage giving a testimony to entertain the masses. Conferences were the same. They looked the same. They sounded the same. I brought it up. I was, shh. It's not true. It's your imagination. You're just angry. You've got a chip on your shoulder. So I kept it down. I kept quiet. But I noted the irritation whenever I talked about it. Suddenly, I wasn't a trophy of grace anymore. I was a pain. Suddenly, I had an attitude problem. Suddenly, I'm the lad with a chip on his shoulder. And I'm here on this stage today despite every single obstacle put in my way by the Christian church. From the the time an old man took me aside in the church and said, why are you here? 
People like you don't come here. What are you after? From the elder that told me, Bible college? Oh, son. <laughs> That's not for the likes of you, lad. You'll never get through it. You've got to write papers and stuff. Like I was thick. From the college lecturer that told me, listen, son, pastoral ministry isn't for your type. You're too rude. You're too, you're too blunt. From the couple at a missions conference that said to me, listen, people from council estates don't become missionaries. Or the other missionaries who took me to a side and said, listen, why don't you just stick to working with street children? They're more your type. From the pastors who told me, guys like you don't plant churches. From the mission board member who told me, stay in Brazil, don't, go, don't take the gospel back to the UK council estates, from the, council, uh, from the countless Christians who told me uh, not to go to Scotland, from the ministers who told me not to start 20 schemes, from the critics who said to me, that won't work, from the countless grant-giving organisations who've turned me and my people down over the years. 20 years I've been a minister grafting for Jesus. I've never had a penny from a grant-giving organisation that I've applied to. In evangelical circles, I can get money for buildings, I can get money for food banks, I can get money for projects, but I can get next to nothing for men and women recruited to plant gospel churches in our toughest communities. From those who sent me emails and told me not to join Acts 29, who told me not to start church in hard places, for those who told me not to hold this conference, for those who wanted to hijack the agenda of this conference and take it from us, from those who said they want to partner with us, but in reality, they want to control us. For those who said to me, don't start the ragged school of theology, that won't work. From those who start snipe on the sidelines, criticizing our every move, yet offering nothing constructive of their own, despite all of that, I am here. I am a product of God's sovereign grace and my own bloody-mindedness. I have prayed, cried, shouted, fought, studied, sacrificed my health for two decades, spent all my energy to get here so that people from my communities can have a voice in the UK church. So nobody's going to tell me it's all in my imagination or that the system is fair. It isn't. I've had to scrap my way through the church. Even to be accepted. And here's my advice to the church, to all of us. You need to, we need to look at it all. It all needs to change. Churches, grant-making bodies, denominations, seminaries, youth camps. All of it. People who sit on boards, people, elders of our churches, the decision makers, every individual Christian, all the things we congratulate ourselves on. The worst, most cynical, snobbish, elitist people I've met in my life are evangelical pastors. And there's, there's something sad watching them scrabbling from, for the scraps from the elitist Christian institutions while cynically mocking and eviscerating anybody who challenges the status quo. We are lying to ourselves in the UK church. The gospel isn't free for all in this country. And if it is, it's not a level playing field when it comes to being discipled, equipped, trained and sent out for ministry. And if something does happen in our communities, a food bank opens or a children's after-school club, we're supposed to be grateful and thankful for it and just sit down and shut up. And we're not here today because the evangelical church in the UK wants to hear the message we have to bring. We're here today to bring the message the evangelical church doesn't want to hear, despite putting every conceivable obstacle in our way. And if we want to change the church, then we need to want to change. And I'm not sure we do. Not enough of us anyway. Now listen to me. I am not saying I'm 100% right. 
Maybe some of this is down to childhood trauma and the response of social rejection. I am a little bit angry sometimes, and this is me being polite. I am <laughs> quite sarcastic sometimes. I am cynical, and you know what? For that, I repent. I'm a moron at the best of times. Right? Let's just get that straight. A grade A, idiot. Okay? I'll agree to that. Doesn't make me wrong, though, does it? Is it really all in my head? Why is it when the poor rise up and do something, when we start a ministry like 20 Schemes, all we get is criticism and cynicism? Why is a ministry like ours seeing converts across Scotland in poor communities, influencing churches around the world, why are we only supported by two churches in Scotland and two in the rest of the UK? Is that not strange to you? Well, there may be nothing sinister in it, nothing at all. One of my friends says to me, why are you so angry? I said, listen, the problem is I'm not so much angry anymore, it's just disappointed. Is this all for show today? Or does the UK church really listen to what we want to say and to the solutions that are coming? You guys are panicking up. Give me just two minutes, right? You're saying I'm over time by 290 seconds, but I don't care. This is important and we need to hear it. I mean, never get another chance after you all get angry and tweet stuff about me. Here's why I'm, I'm optimistic. If God can change me, he can change his bride too. That's why I remain hopeful. I want us to get back on track. I've been telling my working class friends for years, listen, hang in, hang in. Change will come, and when it does, we'll be ahead of the curve. Not that we're better than middle class people, but that we may have something to teach you about a scenario we spent most of our lives armpit deep in. You understand? I'm not saying we're better than you. We're just saying, listen up. We've got something to say. The, there's a problem in the UK church. It exists. The systems in place to reach our people are broken. Many parachurch ministries which operate in our communities are fundamentally flawed and problematic. Half the people running and staffing them aren't even saved. Or if they are, they have a faulty understanding of the gospel. Handing someone a bag of goodies for the week is not, a go- is not the gospel. It's a nice thing to do sometimes. Sometimes it's not a nice thing to do. But please, could somebody explain to me and to Ian why churches in the UK are throwing millions at food banks and parachurch organizations and agencies that are quite patently failing to develop leaders and indigenous Christians in our communities? Why are you throwing millions of that and not a penny at church planning and revitalization? Why have I got to go on my knees? People say, why are you always in America? Because I've got to fly over there to beg for money because you lot in this country won't give us a penny. Now, the first part of my little talk was good because I gave you the, the entertainment bit. People like the entertainment bit. They don't like the second bit. Here's a book you all need to read, Poverty Safari by Darren McCarvey. Come and see me afterwards. Not a Christian guy. This guy is unbelievable. Listen to his quote. I will end with this. Listen to his quote. He says, In Scotland, poverty is dominated by left-leaning liberal middle middle class. Because the specialist class is so genuinely well-intentioned when it comes to the interests of people in deprived communities, they get a bit confused, upset, and offended when those very poor people start expressing their anger towards them. It never occurs to them because they see themselves as the good guys that the people they purport to serve may in fact perceive them as chances, careerists, or charlatans. They regard themselves as champions of the underclass, and therefore, should any poor folk begin to get their own ideas, or, God forbid, 
rebel against the poverty experts, the blame is laid at the door of the complainants for misunderstanding what is going on. You hear what I'm saying? You swap all those words for the middle-class church. I'm a fan of soup kitchens. I'm a fan of food banks. I'm a fan of clothing stores. Let me tell you, in their current form, hear it very loud, they are not working. You can put all the Facebook statuses up you want and congratulate yourselves all you want. They are not working. We want to need to get serious, then we need to shut them down. But you know what? That'll get laughed out of court. He's nuts, that lad. If you run these things, and I'm not criticizing loving Christians who run these things, you're probably most likely frustrated. Frustrated by church leaders who don't take you seriously. Frustrated by the church that doesn't take people who get converted through these ministries in, disciple, equip them, and train them. But I'm telling you, they're not working. They're not working, and we need a complete overhaul of the entire thing. Instead, what am I told? I'm told, shut up, be more constructive. But it's not working. Listen, I'm not going to end with a Braveheart-esque call to arms. This isn't America. It's not the movies where the poor guys come out, triumphant in the end. You know what? Me and Ian walk out arm in arm with uh, John Stevens. <laughs> that would look funny. I'd just look like his little child, wouldn't I? I just want some recognition. There may be a glitch in the matrix. That's all I want. And then we can go from there. Not complete blank denial. It's all in your head, and you guys have just got an attitude problem. Because I don't think it is. We have got an attitude problem. And that's fine. I'm happy about that. Well, I'm not happy about that. <laughs> but if we want to do something, you've got to listen to what we're saying, please. And maybe we can do something actually constructive together. 572 seconds over time, unlucky.